I tried to give an outline in the fewest possible words. Um, so we will use this, the courts in verses 8 through 13, the king verses 14 through 20. And we will take steps beyond that when we get there. In Deuteronomy 17 verse 8, if any case is too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, between one kind of lawsuit or another, between one kind of assault or another, being cases of dispute in your courts, then you shall arise and go to the place the Lord your God chooses. So you shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who is in office in those days, and they shall inquire of them, and they will declare to you the verdict in the case. You shall do according to the terms of the verdict which they declare to you. From the place which the Lord chooses, you shall be careful to observe according to all that they teach you. According to the terms of the law which they teach you, and according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the word which they declare to you to the right or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest who stands there to serve the Lord your, the, the Lord your God, nor to judge, that man shall die. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Then all the people will hear and be afraid and will not act presumptuously again. Now, in the court system... And Moses has already given some kind of indication of this a couple of places. A couple of places that are important to look at for background here. In Exodus 18, verses 23, excuse me, Exodus 18, verses 13 through 27. That is where Jethro tells Moses, Moses, you're wearing yourself out. You're wearing the people out. What you need to do is you need to appoint judges over the people to listen to the matters. They will listen to the matters and they will give judgment. You teach them the way that's good and right and let them make the decisions they can. If a decision is too much, they will bring it to you. The same, Moses reviews that in Deuteronomy 1, Verses 9 through 18, he specifically says, if the case is too difficult, they were to bring it to him. When we think of an appeal being made in court, we often think of an appeal being made by the person that was accused or by the person that was convicted to a higher court to have it overturned. But here it seems like the appeal is made by the judges who recognize this case is too difficult for them. And they are turning it over to those who are above them for insight and for instruction. If any case is too difficult for you to decide. Now notice that verse 8 goes about to list 
three types of difficult cases, one kind of homicide in another, one kind of lawsuit in another, one kind of assault in another. But these are the difficult cases, these are examples of the difficult cases that can arise that lead them to take the case to these judges. Now, I also want to make a statement in, about verse 9. Verse 9, and this is what the New American Standard has, and you can tell me how yours differs. Verse 9 in the New American Standard says, Levitical priest, the Levitical priest, or the judge who is in office in those days. Now, first of all, the word for Levitical priest is plural in verse 9. In the Hebrew, this is plural. And the word that is translated or can be translated and usually is translated and. Now what difference does that make? The difference it makes is it may not be this is brought to a priest or a judge. But this is brought to a group of priests. And a judge. You notice that later in the text, the Bible speaks of they will offer a verdict. I think that's stated six times in verses 9 through 11. That they will give, they will declare to you the verdict. They declare to you. Uh, they will teach you. So that's stated six times, I believe. From verses 9 to verses 11. So it may not be that this is a decision of one person. But this is a decision of priests and a judge. Now when we get to verse 12. The term priest is used in singular there. But the Bible says whatever they declare to you in verse 10. You are to observe according to all they teach you. In verse 11, it says you are not to turn aside from the word which they declare to you to the right or to the left. Have there ever been judges making bad decisions? Were there ever judges made bad decisions in Israel? Apparently though... These decisions are viewed as inspired of God. Now, why do I say that? Because one, they to observe according to all they say, verse 10. In verse 11, you're not to turn to the right or to the left. And verse 12, the one who disobeys is acting presumptuously and the penalty is death. Death is the penalty. And this will result in verse 13 in all the people hearing and being afraid. All the people will understand the seriousness of abiding by this judgment. Now, one of the reasons I say, I take it that they are inspired in this decision, is you look in verse 11 and it says that they are not to turn to the right or to the left. Look at verse 20, and we're going to find that expression used again. His heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right 
or to the left in order that his sons may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of Israel. That kind of expression to the right or to the left is used for adherence to the commandment of God in Deuteronomy uh, 17 verse 20, in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 14. You see that? And also Joshua was told the same thing in Joshua 1 and verse 7. Do not turn from the right to the, or to the left from what God commanded you. So these decisions, if they appeal these decisions and these priests and judge give their decision, they are to follow them to the letter. Any, any questions right there? Mike? Is, it, is this the same instruction that Ezekiel <coughs> references in Ezekiel 44 um, when he was talking about the, the priest of the uh, Levites and the family of Zadok in verse 44, verse uh, 24, it says, In controversy, he's talking about the priest, they shall stand as judges and judge according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my plans Okay, and that was 44, 44, 24. 44, 24. Yes, in Ezekiel 40-48, Ezekiel envisions an ideal future for God's people and an ideal temple. And he pictures the priests and Levites playing significant roles. And yes, this would be the same type of thing that they are, because like Right before it, the priests are to discern between the unclean and the clean uh, from Leviticus 10 uh, verses 8 through 11. And they are judged the, pe- judge the people in disputes. So what Ezekiel is picturing is the restoration of a lot of things God has stated in passages like Leviticus through Deuteronomy. Now, let's talk about the king. There have been references to kings before in the Pentateuch. You see, for example, that Abraham was told that kings will come from you in Genesis 17, verse 6, in Genesis 17, verse 16, in Genesis 35, verse 11. Jacob was told the same thing. There are references to a king being among the people, and we'll see that later in the curses of the covenant. In Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 28, verse 36, your king who is among you. But this is the passage in the Pentateuch where you see a description of who the king is to be and what the king is to do. In verse 14, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, You enter the land the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it. And you said, and you say, I will set over me like all, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen. You shall not set a king over yourselves. You shall not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. 
Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Let's stop there and look at these passages just a moment. I'm going to set a king over me like the nation. Well, it's what we see in 1 Samuel 8, isn't it? And that's the very same appeal the people made. They want a king like all the nations. And here, this is alluded to in Deuteronomy. That that I will set a king over me like the nations around me. Now, what are the qualifications for this king? It's the king the Lord chooses. Ultimately, this is not man's choice. This is not an open election. This is the Lord's choice. The Lord's choice in this particular case. And it is to be a native Israelite. He is to be one of your countrymen. That is said positively. And the negative is also stated. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Now, why would God say that? Are there things about being a king of a nation that are going to be understood only properly by someone who has lived their whole life and had their whole experience From the lens of someone from that nation. Makes sense to me. And later that same kind of qualification is given for a prophet. In 18 verse 18. But also interesting are three things. Three things that the king is not to multiply. He is not to multiply horses and make the people return to Egypt. He is not to multiply wives. He is not to multiply silver and gold. Now, what we have just stated is the way most kings in the ancient Near East lived. That's the way they lived. You remember the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, the king divorces his wife, Vashti. And when he divorces her, he calls that all the beautiful young virgins be brought to the king so that he takes them as, as takes one as his wife. Now, He's taking one as a queen, but everybody he's with is a part of his harem. And there is a second, uh, there's a second sending out in Esther 2 for wives. Kings often multiply wives. Kings multiply their wealth and silver and gold. And they display horses were military power. And really, we see all of these things 
in the book of Esther. In the book, first chapter of Esther, Xerxes is showing all his wealth and displaying all his riches. And the reason he's displaying his riches, and this isn't in the text, but historically, is because he's about to go to battle with Greece. So all of the things that kings in the ancient Near East generally multiplied, God tells Israel's king, you're not to multiply horses. Your trust is not in horses and chariots. Your trust is in God. Psalm 20 verse 7. Also, you're not simply to try to take at the people's expense. You're not simply trying to see how rich you can get or how many wives you can obtain. The king is to be a servant of the people, not to simply use his position to enrich himself. Now, that's a wild concept, isn't it? I would say we've only had one king who really fulfilled that. But the king is not to multiply horses, wives, silver and gold. I'll tell you a phrase that's also important here. He's not to multiply horses, and wives and silver and gold. That is just a preposition, that one letter, and that is the suffix that means him. He is not to multiply him to himself. Now that is stated three times in 17 verses 16 to 17. He's not to multiply horses to himself, or wives to himself, or silver and gold to himself. Now let me tell you something that's important about that. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 8, when Samuel is warning the people about the kind of king that they're going to have? He tells them he will take your things for himself. In verse 11, in verse 12, in verse 17 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. There are other times that simply the pronoun his is used with the same effect, but the very same preposition and suffix to himself is used three times. The point is, when you have power, it tends to go in simply using that position for your own personal aggrandizement and not for the good of those that you're over. And that can happen. It can happen even among churches. Now, what does he say if you multiply wise for yourself? What will that do? Turn your heart away. Can you think of anybody who is an example of a wife who turned their heart, a king who multiplied wives and turned their heart away, Bob? Solomon. Solomon. Solomon in 1 Kings 
chapter 11, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, it says his wives turned his heart away. His wives turned his heart away. Now, let me also tell you something in that context. You know what's right before that? 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 14 through 25, is that Solomon multiplied silver and gold. 1 Kings 10, verses 26 through 29, Solomon multiplied horses. And you know where he got those horses from? Egypt. Just the very, very place. Egypt was famous for its horses. Famous for these. And that's where Solomon goes. What I'm saying is Solomon stepped in the right, wrong direction, did not start just with his wife. He was making some steps in the wrong direction. Now, I know, and, and, and I don't know the balance here, and I know I've often been asked, doesn't it say the Lord blessed him with these things? And God promised to bless him with riches. There is some level where that is the Lord's blessing, and there's some level at which he is too intent on acquiring it for himself. Do I know the perfect line between them? I don't. But one thing I know is the division of the kingdom after his death is tied to the high taxes he put on the people. Okay. You see that in 1 Kings 12. You see that in 1 Kings 12. So, so it's all tied together. So these are things that kings shouldn't do. Is it easy to use a position as king, to use a position of authority for personal enrichment, for personal satisfaction and not God's glory? That is true whether you're the king. That is true whether you are um, a manager at work <coughs> or whether you are the leader in a family. It's a temptation for us all. And in verse 18, what is the king to do? There's really one requirement. In verse 18, it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. Notice in verse 18, this is for himself. He doesn't multiply wives for himself. He doesn't multiply horses for himself. He doesn't multiply silver and gold for himself. And I'll tell you what he does for himself. He writes a copy of the law. He writes a copy of the law in the presence of the priest. He writes it out, and then in verse 19, he reads it all the days of his life. I, I said there's basically one thing, if you want to make that too, you can. But, but you see, it's all tied to writing out the law and reading the law. Now, there are a couple of good effects that's going to happen. A couple of good effects if you write the law and if you read the law all the days of your life. 
What it's going to do positively, it's going to teach you to fear God. There is a close connection in Deuteronomy between fearing God and reading his word or even just listening to his word. When all the people were assembled at Mount Sinai, the Lord spoke so that the people might fear him. That's Deuteronomy 4. In verses 9 and 10, the king is to read the law that he might learn to fear the Lord his God. Every seven years, there was an assembly of all the people at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they read all the law. And all those who heard were going to learn to fear God. Deuteronomy 31 verses 12 and 13. So what you see in all these cases is there's a connection between reading the Word and doing the Word and fearing the God of the Word. There is a temptation to people in powerful positions to be proud. The Word can keep you humble. In verse 20, it keeps your heart from being lifted up among your countrymen. Keeps your heart from being lifted up. How does the king not think he's any better than the average person in the country? By writing the word and reading the word all the days of his life. Just the very fact that we go to it as God's message, humbling ourselves before it, has a humbling effect on us as we deal with our fellow man. And we are not to turn aside to the right nor to the left. We just do exactly what God said to do so that we may continue long. So here the the blessing is that his sons may continue long in the land. In a sense, the ultimate king of the land was always God and always his word. If the word went one way and the king went another, God was right. That's the way it is among us. Whether it be a preacher, whether it be an elder... Whoever it is, if the word goes one way and they go the other or we go the other, the word's always right. And we got to call attention to that. And I want to tell you, there's nothing I think I was taught growing up that was more important than that fact. Preacher standing up and saying, listen, I could be wrong, but the word isn't wrong. Keep going to the word. We do make mistakes. We may miss certain passages. And if we keep doing that, it is a self-correcting process. What, what thoughts do you have? Uh, John? God's going to choose them unless you're going to choose, you're going to choose 
Uh-huh. Yeah, we. Well, that's, that's it's interesting, and I guess I haven't really thought through that. The Lord does choose, and the Lord selects. Of course, when they have the line of David, you know they are descendants. His descendants serve as king. You do have a case where, for example, after Josiah dies, where you have, and this was in our reading recently. I don't know if you picked up on this. But if you didn't, here's a chance. Okay. Um, after Josiah dies, Jehoahaz is king, and then Jehoiakim is king. You remember that? Okay. Did you catch which of those two was older? Jehoiakim was older than Jehoahaz. The Bible says the people of the land made Jehoahaz king in 2 Kings 23.30. Then what happens is Pharaoh comes and removes Jehoahaz, takes him to Egypt, he never returns, sets Eliakim on the throne, changes his name to Jehoiakim. I, I don't want to get too lost in that, but I think the people may have set him on the throne because Jehoahaz was known to be, and this is reading between the lines, anti-Egypt. Egypt has just killed Josiah, their king. They want a king who will take a strong stand against Egypt, but Pharaoh doesn't. And Pharaoh removes him and places a king, the older brother, more to his liking. If I lost you in that, that's okay. Uh, if you want to ask about that afterwards, you can. But what I'm, what I'm basically doing is just throwing out a lot of evidence, but saying, John, I don't know. I'm saying I don't know in a fancy way. Um, but Bob and then Sarah. Yes. Yes, that's right. Majority didn't. I am thinking, as, as Bob said that, some, something about how he said that at first hit me. I think that only two kings, and I'm not saying that this is, these are the only ones to whom this applies, but the only two that are specifically applied these words chosen to are David and Solomon, I believe in First Chronicles. But, uh, Sarah? So I was thinking about in Matthew, when we uh-huh. learn about Herod the king, yeah. and how he was actually a foreigner, and so he could never have been, I mean, laying aside the lineage of David, but yeah. he, he could never have been a king, and yet that was part of what he wanted to be. That's a good point. And so, that is a good point. Recently, so it was kind of like... He may serve as a good illustration, too, of why you don't want that. Because he doesn't understand the Jewish people at all and their longings for God and longings for Messiah. Uh, and so that, that, that is, that's a good point. And it also may serve as a good illustration of the why, too. Okay. He talks about the priests in verses 1 through 8. The way he introduces it in verses 1 and 2, he says, The Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance 
with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire in his portion. They shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. Now there are some who think that Deuteronomy um, misunderstands some things said about the priesthood in the Old Testament. Uh, Let me just ask you this question. You remember the math classes. Sets and subsets. Sets are bigger, subsets are smaller. Which set is bigger? Levites or priests? Levites. All priests were Levites. Were all Levites priests? No. No. So Levites is the bigger set. From that, you take the subset of priests. Now, some say, well, Deuteronomy doesn't know that. It's amazing to me how modern writers know so much more than the biblical writers. Um, No, I think Deuteronomy is well aware of this. I think he's simply saying the Levitical priests, the priests who are from the tribe of Levi, indeed, the whole tribe of Levi. That's, That's... I'm paraphrasing the first part of verse 1, but I think that's the idea. The Levitical priest, the whole tribe of Levi. This applies to the priest, this applies to the whole tribe. And four times it is said that they have no inheritance. Uh, It said they have no portion or inheritance in verse 1. In verse 1 it says, They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and his portion. That word portion is actually the same word translated inheritance earlier, not the same word translated portion. In verse 2 they shall have no inheritance and then the Lord is their inheritance. They were not given an allotment of land like the other tribes. They don't have an inheritance in that sense. Their inheritance is the Lord. And the Lord provides for them by the sacrifices that were offered by the first fruits that were brought in verses 3 and 4. Now this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those who offer a sacrifice, either an ox or a sheep, of which they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. And you shall give him the first fruits of your grain, your new wine and your oil, and the first shearing of your flock. In verse 5, for the Lord your God has chosen him and his sons from all your tribes to stand and serve in the name of the Lord. The Lord is their inheritance. They receive a portion of the first fruits. They receive a portion of the sacrifices because the Lord has chosen them to stand. In verse in verse 6, Now, if a Levite comes from any of your towns throughout Israel where he resides and comes wherever he desires to the place which the Lord chooses, then he shall serve in the name of the Lord his God like all his fellow Levites who stand there before the Lord. They shall eat equal portions except what they receive from the sale of their father's estates. Let's make a couple of observations about this. Some people read verses 6 to 8 and they, remembering what we said before, that they think this says all Levites could serve as priests. That if a Levite comes from any country to the place the Lord chooses, which will eventually be Jerusalem, then he can serve in whatever way he wants to serve. 
If he wants to be a priest, he can be a priest. Is that what that says? If a Levite comes from any of these towns, whenever he desires to the place the Lord chooses, he shall serve in the name of his Lord. doesn't say he does the same thing the priest does. It says he does what the Levites do. And it says he eats an equal portion of the sacrifice. Let me give you a good passage to write down here. 2 Kings 23, verse 9. In 2 Kings 23, Josiah is tearing down the idols in the land. In 2 Kings 23, verse 9, the text says, Nevertheless, the priest of the high places did not go up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. Those who had served in the high places, those who had followed these places of worship that became centers of idolatry, those priests were not allowed to go up to Jerusalem, the place God chose, and eat at the altar. That is a prohibition against idolatrous priests. I think what Leviticus is saying, or what Deuteronomy is saying about the Levites, it is saying that just because they don't live in the city God chose, they can go down, they can go to the city, and they can partake of the sacrifices that are due to the Levites. You also notice... Whatever it means that the Lord is the inheritance of the Levites apparently doesn't mean that they couldn't own some kind of personal property. And though the italicized words in verse 8 indicate there's some difficulty in translation, apparently they could receive something from their father's share of the inheritance. Now, we know that from other places. We know that from other places. Let me give you an illustration. Who was the man in Acts 4? Contrast to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of land, pretended as if they gave the all, and laid at the apostles' feet, but kept back part of the sum. Who was the man at the end of Acts 4 who sold a piece of land and brought the money Lady the Apostles. Who was that? Joseph called Barnabas. Barnabas. How is he identified in the text? A Levite from Cyprus. Levite from Cyprus. He's a Levite. He had a piece of land. He sold it. Could Levites own territory? Yes. You see that also in Leviticus 25 around verse 23 beginning. So so, yes, but this, this is simply saying the priests are to serve. They can come serve in Jerusalem and partake of the sacrifice. Now, I want to make sure to get into this next section some. I don't know if we will get to cover it all. Every nation wanted to get a word from their God. Every nation did. Every people. But how did they inquire of their gods? 
Well, verses 9 through 14 give us some indications. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. You don't imitate what they do and how they inquire of God, their God. Because they are detestable, detestable, an abomination. In verse 10, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. One who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. Now, that is a long list of practices. In verses 10 and 11. And to really benefit from it. This is where something like, and I think I've mentioned it publicly, but like the Bible hub is so valuable. If you look up the Hebrew words, it it will have the Hebrew words broken down word by word. And you can click on a place in those words, and I can help show you. Not much I can show you on that, but I can show you that. And see other places where these words are used that can give you insight about what they mean and how often they were condemned in the Old Testament. But all of these were means other nations used to inquire of God. Look at... Ezekiel 21. Ezekiel 21 is one of those passages that gives us a little bit of insight how the nations inquired of their gods. This is Ezekiel 21 and in verse 21 is what we're going to look at. Um, But what's happening is Nebuchadnezzar has come to a crossroad And he's either going to go to Rabbah of the Ammonites and destroy it or Jerusalem in the land of Judah and destroy it. In verse 21 of Ezekiel 21, the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the ways, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes arrows. He consults household idols. He looks at livers. Into his right hand came the divination Jerusalem. But... But they they did, among the things they did to inquire of their God, they killed an animal, they took out its liver, and they looked at its liver, and they could tell by this liver they thought the will of their God. Archaeologists have found in Babylon plastic livers that were made and used in schools as instruction to teach diviners as to how to read them and what certain signs meant. Wow. But some of them went so far as to cause their children to fast through the fire. In a certain sense, the more you offer, the greater the sacrifice. The more likely you are to hear from your God. 
And they caused their children to pass the fire. They offered them as human sacrifices to find the will of their God. Today we just offer our children as human sacrifices for our God of pleasure or our God of sex with no consequences. And as we understand more and more that goes on in the womb, abortion becomes less and less defensible. But it's always been indefensible. And there's always been voices raised against it, even the ancient world. For there's a knowledge that the child is a person, but, but here they are doing this to children outside the womb. Whoever does these things is detestable, God says. Which king turned to a medium when he received no answer from God? Who was that? Saul in 1 Samuel 28. Whoever does these is detestable to God. And the Bible says the Lord will drive them out. You will not, you will be blameless before the Lord your God. I, I want to emphasize that God states here in this passage. God states in Deuteronomy 18 that one of the reasons these nations fail is because this is how they inquired of the gods. Leviticus 18, 24 through 30 attributes their fall to sexual immorality, the same for Leviticus 20, verses 22 through 26. But this passage deals with deals with the fall of this people. One of the reasons they were driven out is because of this. Because of these. Apparently, these are things that God expects not just His covenant people to understand, but something that should be understood among all nations. And for nations to violate this, it can cause destruction. But God says, don't listen to them. Don't listen to these who practice these kinds of things. And in our day, as faith wanes, astrology and mediums and sorcerers increase. By the way, this is true. This was not far from our house in Florida. We're... And I'm changing the wording a little bit, but, but there was a psychic, a psychic's office. But it says it was closed because of COVID. And I'm thinking, they couldn't see COVID coming. So they're basically saying they're closed for unforeseen circumstances. And think about that just a little bit. <laughs> In contrast, in contrast to learning God's will from these matters, they're going to learn God's will from 
prophets. God will raise up prophets who will communicate His word to the people. And is that the second thing? Was the second thing or? Yeah. Oh. I love this section, verses fifteen through twenty-two, and uh, I want you to love it too. And I hope Wednesday night, uh, read it many times, and we'll try to deal with that. Um, we'll try to cover from there nineteen and see if we can get into twenty on. Um, Wednesday, Wednesday night. Thank you and God bless.